I'd invite you to turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Before we get started, it, uh, sitting in the front makes you feel young, right? When all those kids come and stand around you. Uh, if you want to feel young, maybe sit up there and get the blessing with them, right, as they leave. But also, uh, I we have just been um, approved by y'all to, to be one of your missionaries. And so it is always a delight to be able to say thank you in person. Um, we can't plant churches in Honduras without churches that support and pray for us. And so first and foremost, thank you. Thank you for your love for missions. Thank you for your love for the church because we long that the gospel would be proclaimed worldwide. And we long that that would happen even here this morning as I preach this text. So I'd ask you to follow along with me in Luke chapter eight, and we will read verses 26 to 39. This is the word of the Lord. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you. Do not torment me, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter there, or these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to, the, to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning knowing of our insufficiency knowing that we, in and of ourselves, do not have the ability to understand your word, but it is through your spirit that the truth of the, the word comes to our hearts. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear wonderful things in your law. We ask that you would allow us to leave those things that are captivating our mind or making us think about what the week has in store and think on this truth about what you have done for the demoniac, that we would be able to focus on the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 
that as we sit before your word, that we would be changed by it, that you would make us more like our Savior, that we would not leave this place in the same way that we entered, but that we would be transformed by the word of God, that our love and affections for Jesus would be kindled anew if they have gone cold, that our affections for Christ would maybe come for the first time if, if there are unbelievers amongst us. And that we would also be encouraged once again in the power and the hope of the gospel. We thank you that your word doesn't return void. We ask that you would do your work through your word even this morning. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I can remember um, a few years back when my wife and I, uh, I was in seminary. We had the opportunity to uh, go out on a date night. And we went to see the movie Saving Mr. Banks. And in that movie... Uh, Walt Disney has the desire to make the movie Mary Poppins, and he loved the story, and so he kept asking if he could make it into a movie under the Disney name, and the lady who wrote it kept telling him no. She kept saying, no, 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 you cannot have the rights to do it, and so he persisted. When he persisted, he finally got on a plane and went and saw her and said, listen, I would really like to make this movie. And she began to tell him her concerns. And the main concern that she had was that he would destroy Mr. Banks. And when the reason that she was worried he would destroy Mr. Banks was because she had written the, the character Mr. Banks after her dad. So she was concerned that she would he would ruin this person. And he looked at her, and I still remember how he said it. He said, you know, I won't ruin Mr. Banks because, you see, this is what storytellers do. We restore hope. And we restore order with imagination. And we instill hope again and again and again. And as we come to this text this morning, the content of what we have is a text that is driven to help us realize that there is hope. That our God instills hope again and again and again and again through the truth of the gospel. That what we read this morning is, is driven and, and aimed at us being overwhelmed by who our Savior is. That we come to this text, as even Pastor Ben talked about, coming like little children. We come, like Matthew 18 tells us, and have faith like little children to receive the word and be overwhelmed by our Christ and what he has done. And be captivated by his goodness and his glory. You may come thinking, you know, Aaron, I've heard this text preached before and by a much better preacher than you. But I would invite you this morning to not look to me, but to be surprised and overwhelmed again by the power and the rule and the authority of our king. And I want us to see that in four points this morning in the text. First, where Jesus goes. Second, who Jesus meets. Third, what Jesus does. Fourth, what, how people respond. So first, where Jesus goes. Second, who Jesus meets. Third, what Jesus does. And fourth, how people respond. So firstly, we see in verse 26, where Jesus goes. You see in the text it says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. So Jesus, with the disciples, gets in a boat and begins to cross the Sea of Galilee, going to a new place. And what he is doing is extending where the gospel goes, right? He had been in Jewish-occupied territory, places where they, you would expect Jesus to be and preach and teach. And now he is crossing Galilee into this 
very unexpected place. He's going to take the gospel to this man across the Sea of Galilee into this area where we get in other texts, the Gadarene, Gerasene, Gergesene, demoniac is. And it's like him extending out where the gospel goes. So if you think about Houston, it's y'all might tell people that you're from Houston, but you're not. Maybe you do are from Houston, but if you want to be more precise, you're from Spring or from Cyprus. But to tell people who aren't from here, we're from we're from Houston, right? And so the idea is, this is what we have in this context. He's describing all this area, and he's extending the gospel out from here. And what we need to notice is that Jesus is going into Gentile country. He's going to a place that would be unexpected for Jesus to go. And he's taking the gospel to not just Jews, but to Gentiles. And he comes ashore in a place that we wouldn't expect. We see in the text that he crosses and he goes across this other side of the land and he, and he comes in contact with a man. And where is this man? He's in the tombs. So he's setting foot in a place that would have been unclean with, and coming in contact with a man who is unclean, who's filled with demons. And then he's going to be in a place where there are pigs up on the top of the hill, which for a Jewish context would have been unacceptable. Right, So here's where Christ is going. He's extending the gospel to this unexpected place. What Christ has come to do is do this unexpected work because he's crossing the sea to come in and meet with this man who is living among the grave and is an outcast. He walks into this place where there's death and there's uncleanliness and there's no word of God. And you would think, this is very unexpected. Why would he go there? Why would Jesus extend the gospel to this unexpected place? And we see why he does it. In the second point, who Jesus meets. Who Jesus meets. You see it in the text in verse 27, it says, When Jesus stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had lived in a house, uh, not in a house, but among the tombs. So Jesus gets across the sea and he puts his foot down. And, and what we have image-wise here is that Jesus sets his foot down and as soon as he steps on land, this man comes running out of the tombs towards him. Right? You can imagine being one of the disciples and seeing this situation. You're getting out of the boat with Jesus, and here comes this crazy man running at you from the tombs. And as we read in the text, naked and screaming Jesus' name. Right? You'd just been in the boat, if you look in the, in the text, and Jesus had calmed the storm. You're thinking, let's get back in the boat, Jesus. I'd rather face the storms. Right, It would be a little easier to go and do that than, than deal with this man. But this man is running at Jesus, and he's screaming at them. He's out of his mind. You notice how he comes running up. It says in verse 28, when, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's very interesting that this man tries to use the name of Jesus as a way to show dominance. I know who you are. 
And I'm going to put you in your place, Jesus. And he comes running out at Jesus to show this form of dominance. But it has, if you've ever watched the Lord of the Rings, a a little bit of a golem type feel to it. He comes running with dominance, but he's bowing down. Kind of, I know how powerful this guy really is. It's interesting that also the disciples... The disciples were trying at times to figure out who this Jesus was. And these demons knew exactly who he was when he set foot on the ground. Steps out of the boat. There's the son of the most high God. The confession of what the the demons know about this God. And they, they come running up to try and show power. It's amazing the, the state of this man. He's naked. He's alone. He's most likely been living by himself for years and years and years. He's living among the tombs. And if you were to go to Mark chapter 5, verse 5, you, you would read that he cries out and he cuts himself with stones. And we also read in the text that he had superhuman strength. If you look in verse 29, it, said, it says in the parentheses, for many a time it seized him, that being the demons, he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So here's this man who is naked, he's alone, he's lived by himself, he's out of his mind, he's self-destructive, he's got human strength, he's enslaved by wickedness, and he's the exact type person that we would keep distance from, right? If you've been to downtown Houston recently, And in other major cities, there are a lot of homeless people on the streets. And oftentimes, we cross the street when we see homeless people or we keep a distance. This naked demoniac would have been somebody that we crossed the street, got in the car, closed the door, and probably locked it as he screams at Jesus. But you look at the compassion of our Savior He's now face to face with this demoniac. He's gotten off the boat and this Jesus is standing there and this man is running at him. And he's now directly with our Savior. And there is no sense of Jesus pulling back. There's no sense of Jesus saying, whoa, 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 I don't know what to do with this. No, he comes face to face with him. And how does Jesus respond with a man screaming his name? What does Jesus ask him? He wants to know his name. He's going to put him in his place. He's going to reorient the fact that this Jesus has all power and authority. So he says in verse 30, what's your name? What is your name? And the demon-possessed man responds with this term legion, which we know from the text that he was filled with many demons. It's We could think that maybe it is a Roman word and a legion of of Roman soldiers would have been 6,000. It's filled with potentially 6,000 demons. And here he stands before our Savior. This man who has been living alone and by himself and cast out. And what it led uh, Sinclair Ferguson to say was that that name, legion, leads us or tells us that this man was an outpost of demonic activity in this world. Perhaps in this military language, we're meant to catch the fact that Satan's opposition to the kingdom of God is not haphazard, but ruthlessly well-organized. 
The reality that Christ has called us to worship and gather together, Satan hates. The fact that we're here to proclaim the glories of Christ as, as we sing songs that talk about his blood covering our sin, as we're reminded of his faithfulness and goodness to us, as we gather as a pilgrim people being reminded that we're headed to a better country, that this is not our home, that the devil and the demons hate it. They hate that we gather to worship because it expresses that we are ruled by another who is greater than him, who is Christ Jesus, who has all power and authority at his hands. And so here you see that this outpost of demonic activity is before our Savior. This man is overcome by demons. And really the truth is we may say that that. We can't relate to this demon-possessed man. None of us have probably ever been demon-possessed or run around naked in the tombs around downtown Houston. That's not been our story or what we've done. But the reality is, if you read today, we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, but if you read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 3, at some level, this is all our story. Right At some level. Read, if you read, let me read it to you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, what... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 is telling us is that this man, though, though demon-possessed, needed the same saving power as we need it. That the truth that he was lost and dead in his transgressions is the very same truth that, that is true for us. That we are lost and dead in our transgressions without Christ. That we are a needy people who need to be saved that there is no hope for us outside of Christ. So you look and you say, May, I, I might not have that much in common with this man, but there is a commonality in the fact that our need prior to salvation is the exact same need. The people who walk around us who don't know Christ today need the same power that casts these demons out to bring them to life. And the only one that can do it is Christ through the work of the Spirit. Do you understand that that's what we're seeing in this text? That, that Christ has come to have an, a divine appointment with this man who's filled with demons and he's going to bring him back to life. That's what this text is about. And that's how we get to the third point, what Jesus does. What Jesus does, there's a pastor, a Welsh pastor named Jeff Thomas, who talking about this text said, you know, the, the angels long to understand our salvation. They, they lean in to understand our salvation. You would think that as this man saved, the, the angels are leaning in going, really this one? Really this one? Do you realize how far gone this one is, Jesus? And he's showing how great his power truly is. And so we see, thirdly, 
what Jesus does. He shows his power. You see it in verse 31. It says, uh, after he asked their name, in verse 31, he says, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, and they begged him. That's the second time we've seen the word begged. And they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. You see the power of Jesus. These demons, some 6,000 demons, are begging him not to send them into the abyss. They recognize his power. And if we were to look at the whole of chapter 8, we would recognize that the whole chapter is designed to show us his power, right? If you were to look at just up a little bit in, in 22 to 25, you see that Jesus has power over the storms, power over creation. Now in this text, he has power over the demons, power over demonic activity. If you go a little farther down, you see that Jesus heals the woman with a flow of blood, power over sickness. And then he takes Jairus's daughter and he raises her from the dead, power over death. What Jesus is showing the people is there is nothing, nothing in creation that is outside of my power. I am the one by whom, for, through, for whom, and through whom all things were created and all things exist for my very glory. And so what we see is, is Christ showing forth his power. And these demons are begging him, begging him not to destroy them. And so they come and they ask, can we go into the pigs? And it's Jesus versus a whole host of demons. And there's not a single fight back. Not a second of fight back. Not a second. It says in verse 32, they beg, and then at the end, so he gave them permission. And they went into the pigs. The pigs go flying down the hill, jump in the water, and they all drown. The power of Christ against demonic activity. The power of Christ over all things. Stop and make a comment that there are some very famous uh, atheists who have said this is the text that causes them not to believe the gospel. Because they say, how could Jesus kill so many pigs? And I know it makes us laugh. The darkened mind that thinks that the creation is greater than the ones who hold the image of the creator. The darkened mind doesn't make sense. And so they look at this text and they go, he killed so many pigs. But what Christ is showing is that the salvation of one is more important than millions of pigs. That the salvation of one soul is more important than anything else. That's why we pray that God would use whatever is at his disposal to call sinners home. We want them to know Jesus, just one. We would long that today would be a day of salvation. We would long that in Houston, that, that, that preachers would preach Christ and salvation would happen today. We would long that it happens in our presence. We long that it happens in Tegucigalpa and in Japan and in all throughout Asia and all throughout Europe because what we want is to rejoice at Christ saving people. And they're worried about the pigs and it's the same worry that the people had, right? It's the exact same worry. The people come back. We see in the text in verse 
34, that the people then went and fled and told in the city and in the country what had happened. And then in 35, the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They're scared of this Jesus and his power and his ability to affect their lives. The, the ability to, at some level, affect their financial state, right? The pigs were probably, for some of these people, the way they were making money, and now Jesus has gotten rid of the pigs. And they're scared of the power of this Jesus and what he can do. We can get overwhelmed by looking at, at that part and the pigs, but what we need to stop and look at is what Jesus has done. He has restored a man to life. Notice the detail Luke goes into. Here are the contrast. Man living in the tombs, screaming at people, running around, screaming at night, screaming at others, screaming at Jesus, running around naked, cutting himself for 20 plus years. Comes into contact with the living God. And look what the text says. In verse 35, it says, Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. The transforming power of the gospel, the detail of our Savior. He'd been running around naked, and he's clothed. He's out of his mind, and now he's in his right mind. He's saved by what Christ has done. He's been given a new heart. He was dead and in his transgressions and lost. And there was no hope. And yet Christ restored hope by the word of his power. That's the glory of the text. Look at the power of Christ to save. That's what we, who we come to worship Lord's Day by Lord's Day. We come because we know the power of Christ. And we also look at the text and think about how far gone this guy was. There may be some of you who, who have friends or family, covenant children, who you've been praying for for years. Who you've been longing that they would confess Christ. And you think maybe they're too far gone. Maybe you have a neighbor who lives in sin and unbelief. Stresses you and it causes you difficulty and pain. But look, this Savior can in a moment show up and cause change through the power of the Word. Don't stop praying. Don't stop asking the Lord to do the work that He's doing. He is being faithful to His church, He's being faithful to His people, He is calling sinners home. The Lord has the power to save, and in very unexpected ways. Right? This is an unexpected thing. This is not the way we would have written the story. We would have put well put together people that Jesus came and announced the gospel to, and they seemed like the right people to be saved, and he went to a very unexpected place, cast out demons, called the man home. And it can seem at some level almost illogical. I remember during the whole pandemic in Honduras, 
it was August, September, we were still online, and uh, where I was preaching is in my kitchen, not my dining room. So I would stand there, and I would stack up all my theology books and put my cell phone on the top. So I was preaching to Bob Inc. and Calvin and Luther and my cell phone. And it defied logic, right? Here I am, normally in this, preaching my little heart out in Spanish to who knows who's on the other side. And I was having my little pity party. This doesn't make any sense. I don't want to do this anymore. I would love to see people. I'm an extreme extrovert, so I want to be around people and preaching to a camera. Lord, this doesn't make sense. And in God's kindness, a month later, they, they kind of relaxed restrictions in Honduras and we were able to gather to worship again. When we gathered, there was a young lady there with... Uh, her two kids. She'd found us online through the recommendation of a family member. And she started watching us in August, September. And so when she got there, she said, listen, I'd love to know about joining the church and what that would look like. And I said, oh, well, come to my office. So she came to my office uh, a couple days later and we were sitting there talking. And I said, well, how did you find us? She said, yeah, a, a friend, rec a family member recommended it. And I said, okay, well, tell me about how you came to know Christ. And she said, no, no, no. I came to know Christ watching you online in August or September. What seems like foolishness, right? I'm sitting there having a pity party about having to preach into a camera with my theology books and the Lord is saving souls. It doesn't seem like the way that it should work, but our Lord does unexpected things for the glory of his name because it lifts up his name and makes us see the glory of our Christ. And so that's what Jesus does. But finally, and very briefly, we see how the people respond. How the people respond. And we, we see it when they come back in verse, or how people respond. And we see it in verse 35. At the end, it says, as they've seen him in his right mind and clothed, it says they were afraid. And verse 36, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The people, seeing what Jesus had done, were afraid and actually, at some level, very unimpressed. Y'all are gonna think that all I do is talk about movies because I've mentioned Lord of the Rings and I've mentioned Saving Mr. Banks, but I was looking through Instagram which I probably shouldn't have been wasting any time on Instagram, but I was looking through Instagram and a friend had posted a picture of his little four-year-old going to his first movie. And it was just a side shot of this kid staring at that massive screen for the first time and his mouth just ajaw, a right? How, is the, how have you not told me about this yet, dad, right? That's what he's thinking. There are these screens this big? Um, and he's overwhelmed by what is there. And then I remember being a youth pastor and taking youth kids to movies all the time. And they'd walk into the movie theater and they'd pull out their cell phone and they'd stare at their cell phone. 
a massive screen choosing a lesser screen. These people are in the presence of the glory of God and their response is fear and their response is not being impressed, asking him to leave. The glory of the creator in your presence and you're not impressed. Their response, and you may say, I wouldn't have responded that way. If you were in the darkness of your own sin, you would have responded the exact same way. Christ, you see the scariness of how people can stare into this, the eyes of this Jesus and still be unimpressed. I've always thought it interesting that there are three requests made, and this helps us understand how people responded. There are three requests made in this text. The demons asked to go into the pigs, and Jesus says yes, right? Then the people asked Jesus to leave. This is the to me, one of the scariest parts of this text. The people ask Jesus to leave, and he leaves. If you're an unbeliever here, there will come a day where the gospel is no longer freely offered. There will come a day where the book of life is shut, and preachers will not stand up and preach the gospel. I, I implore you, I plead with you, come to this Savior. You may think, Aaron, you don't know what I've done this man is the worst of the worst. Go to John chapter four and look at what Je who Jesus saves in that text. Go to Luke 19 and see that Jesus saves Zacchaeus. He can save you from your sins. Come to him. Confess your sins and your need of him and he will save you. But it, it's amazing that he grants that request. They ask him to leave and Jesus leaves. And then the illogical part. The last request is the man who's been saved, right? He's sitting in his right mind next to Jesus, and what's he want to do? Go with Jesus. And we think, this is the perfect candidate, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, no, no. You can't go with me. Go home and tell the city what God has done for you. Verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done done for him. This man who had been an outpost of demonic activity is now an outpost of evangelism for the glory of Christ. That's what he's been called to do and sent out to do. And I don't think, honestly, that's much different for you and for me today. When we remember what we once were, and what Christ has done for us, it should lead us to this response of verse 39. Going and proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus has done for us. This is the best news the world has ever heard. I get to say this from being somebody who's living outside the US, right? Your neighbors, your friends, are watching the same news that you're watching. They're going to the same baseball games, same football games, cheering for the bad SEC teams like Texas A&M. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> talk about that afterwards. Um, and they have questions. Why do you gather to worship? Why do you spend this time proclaiming Christ? Because we know what he's done for us. 
He has brought us life. He's given us hope. He's reminded us that there is a life after this, that we are pilgrims headed to a better country, that this is not our home and never will be our home because our home is with our Savior. And so you today have the best news that has ever been told and your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and your classmates, even though you're on summer vacation, they need to hear this. They need to hear the goodness and glory of our God who's willing and able to save. He hasn't stopped doing it. He's doing it worldwide. This is why we want churches planted. This is why we want people to faithfully preach the gospel because we long that Christ would be honored, that the churches would be full, full not so we can say, hey, we got, two, we got to 200. No, so that we can say we've got more people worshiping the glory of our God and worshiping to the glory of his name. That's what we want because that's what we'll be doing for all of eternity, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what we have come to do, and we are to proclaim that. And I would challenge you to go out and tell your people, your friends, your neighbors, all the people around you that there is hope. You see, because this God is in control of all things. And you may say, Aaron, I'm not good at evangelism. This guy had no training in evangelism. He'd come into contact with Jesus and was just told to go tell everybody what Jesus had done for him. Because the greatest part is that it's not about you saving people. Jesus saves people. Go and proclaim Christ. Go and proclaim Christ. Why? Because the need in Tegucigalpa, Honduras this morning is the exact same need in Houston, Texas. People need Christ. They need hope. People are watching the news and worried about all the Hondurans that are down at the border right now. Right? They're watching the news. They're worried about the presidential situation. They're watching the news and they're overwhelmed with everything going on, with all the things going on. And what we have to remind ourselves is to lift our eyes up and look to the king and recognize that he has all power and authority to do as he pleases to the glory of his name. And our hope is not in this world, but it's in him. I pray that that's where you find your hope this morning.